You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. As a longtime foreign correspondent, I've worked in lots of places, but nowhere as important to the world as China. I'm Jane Perlez, former Beijing bureau chief for The New York Times. Join me on my new podcast, Face Off, U.S. versus China, where I'll take you behind the scenes in the tumultuous U.S.-China relationship. Find Face Off wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, and welcome to the Explorers podcast. Today is part three in our series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. Last time, we left our team at the headwaters of the River of Doubt, which had been found five years earlier by Candido Rondon. The Roosevelt Rondon scientific expedition was going to head down this mysterious river. There were 22 people in the expedition, including Theodore Roosevelt, Candido Rondon, Kermit Roosevelt, naturalist George Cherry, Dr. Jose Cajazira, and 16 camaradas, the strong paddlers and porters who would guide the boats down the river. There were also several dogs with the expedition. The team had seven native canoes, the heaviest weighing more than a ton. The canoes were hard to steer, not very buoyant, and easily swamped as the boats, once loaded, sat only a couple of inches above the waterline. The men would make two rafts by lashing together two pairs of the less seaworthy canoes. These would carry the bulk of the expedition supplies, which included 50 days of rations. The food, by the way, was packaged in these big heavy metal containers. Each container weighed 27 pounds and held five meals. The team had dozens of these, plus 75 U.S. Army emergency rations. The food in the containers varied, but included such things as dehydrated potatoes, onions, bread, rice, condensed milk, bacon, chicken, dates, coffee, tea, and salt. There were other essentials as well, such as matches and soap. The expedition assumed that they would be able to hunt and fish on the journey down the river. By the way, I want to note that when I talk about food during this expedition, I will be referring to the supplies of the Americans and Brazilian officers. The camaradas had their own rations, which were not as varied, or as much, as the Americans. But know that the Americans will be sharing their rations with the rest of the expedition for much of the journey. The men would depart down the River of Doubt at noon on February 27, 1914. The river was swift and twisting. The waters were dark, almost black, although the river was technically considered a clear water river. Also, let's be clear, the expedition was now in the jungle. There were no more deserts or open plains. They had moved into the Amazon basin, and as they descended, the jungles would only get denser. I want to note that the men did not know where the River of Doubt was heading. A common belief was that it would connect with the G. Piranha River, which was not that far to the west. If this was the case, the River of Doubt would be a minor tributary, and the expedition would be complete within a few weeks. Naturalist Leo Miller and his team were going to go down the G. Piranha. A second thought was that if it curved east, the River of Doubt would hook up with another river, such as the Juriana River, which would then take them to the Tapajos. That was the river the team was originally going to travel down with Father Zam. A third theory was that the river would go straight north and connect with the Madeira. 
If this was true, it would be a thousand miles long, or 1,600 kilometers. That would be significant. A fourth theory was that the river would eventually veer east and connect with the Arapuana River. While not as significant as going all the way to the Madeira, this would still make the River of Doubt an important waterway. And so, the expedition would move down the river a long line of canoes and rafts. In the front was the smallest of the canoes, which was manned by Kermit Roosevelt and two of the Camaradas. Behind them was the canoe carrying Rondon, Lieutenant Lira, and some paddlers. After them were the two rafts, and in the rear were the largest of the canoes, which carried Roosevelt, George Cherry, Dr. Kajizira, and three paddlers. Regarding the paddlers, the Camaradas, these were the best available, and the Americans quickly came to respect and admire them. Most wore simple clothing, much of it in rags by now, and a floppy hat. None wore any sort of footwear. Roosevelt would say this of these men, quote, They were expert rivermen and men of the forest, skilled veterans of wilderness work. They were lithe as panthers and brawny as bears. They swam like water dogs. They were equally at home with the pole and the paddle, with axe and machete, end quote. Roosevelt, by the way, would start giving chocolate bars to the camaradas as a way to show his appreciation of what they did and supplement their meager rations. The men loved the chocolate, something that they rarely got, and they loved Roosevelt for the simple gesture. Now, almost from the start of the journey downriver, it became apparent that Colonel Rondon had different ideas than the Americans about what their mission was. The Americans wanted to move, move, move. They wanted to get down the river and claim their prize of glory. However, for Rondon, this was a chance to do a meticulous, detailed survey of the river. He used what was called a fixed station method of surveying, which was time-consuming. It went like this. Kermit Roosevelt, in the lead canoe, would paddle ahead to a spot that offered the longest unimpeded view, up and downstream, of the river. This was usually a bend. He would land, and he and his men would hack out a spot on the shore to place a sighting rod. Lieutenant Lira would then use a telemeter to establish the distance between the canoe and the sighting rod, while Rondon would use his compass to record the direction of the river. A sextant was used to determine longitude and latitude. This fixed station method of survey was very accurate, but labor-intensive. How intensive? Well, on the first day, they took 114 readings. This meant a lot of stopping and starting. A big reason for this was the snaking, twisting nature of the River of Doubt. Most rivers in the Amazon do a lot of twisting and turning, but the River of Doubt was exceptionally bendy, thus the need to constantly be taking new readings. As a result, on the first day, the expedition traveled only six miles in five hours. This did not thrill Roosevelt. He believed that meticulous surveying should be saved for a later expedition. There were just too many unknowns at this point, and spending so much time doing detailed survey work was risky. Rondon, however, saw this as his mission. Who knows when someone else would return? The mission was the most critical thing to Rondon. He was, to be honest, kind of obsessive about completing this or any of his missions. And to be honest, both men were right. They each had valid points. However, it would be Rondon who would win out, as Roosevelt felt it was best to defer to his counterpart for the time being. But the American president was watching things very keenly. This is, by the way, a stark contrast between Roosevelt and Rondon. For Roosevelt, this was a journey of glory and adventure. When done, he'd head back to the United States and put the River of Doubt on his wall of trophies, just as he had done with the Battle of San Juan Hill or the Safari to Africa. Yes, he believed he was doing something to better the world and help mankind, but he was a big-picture guy. The details? Well, that was for other people to take care of later. But for Rondon, the details were his job. Doing the details were what actually made the expedition so valuable to his country and his fellow man. These two viewpoints are going to, eventually, come into conflict. The first day, the river, while swift, was mostly calm and easy to navigate. It was rainy season, and the waters were high, 
allowing the canoes to skim right over a lot of potential obstacles, such as boulders and trees. In the evening, the camp was set up on the shore. Everyone worked, including Roosevelt. There would be no slackers on this expedition. Once the camp was set up, many of the men would write. Kermit and Cherry kept diaries. Rondon would write extensive notes on the expedition thus far. As for Roosevelt, well, he had a publishing deal, so he was always writing about what was going on that day. The night, by the way, was unnerving to everyone, especially when it rained. And that was because of the blackness. It was so dark, the men literally could not see their own hand in front of their faces. The next morning, Rondon would get the camp going with his usual military precision. He would rise about 4 a.m., shave without a mirror, and eat breakfast. He only drank water and tea, no coffee or alcohol. Dressed in his army khakis, he would gather his men, line them up, and hand out the day's orders. One of the first things the men did was to create a camp marker. This was usually a piece of smooth hardwood or something similar. On it, they would paint the camp number and the date, and then affix it to a tree. In reality, the sign was a lost cause. In the heat and humidity, it would rot away in short order, or be eaten by ants or termites. But Rondone loved the routine of it, and he loved the idea of bringing order and knowledge to this obscure corner of the world. The two survey canoes would head out early, allowing the rest of the men to relax and even try their hand at hunting. However, no one ventured far from the shore. Unfortunately, game was not easy to find. In fact, one of the first things the men took note of was how quiet the jungle was. They saw or heard almost no animal activity. The truth is that a lot of the animal activity was way up in the canopy of the jungle, 100 or 150 feet above them. This was where the monkeys and the birds and so forth were active. On the ground, there just wasn't a lot going on. Big game animals were practically non-existent in South America. There were no lions or hippos or elephants or anything of that size. The jaguar was the most dangerous animal, but they avoided big parties such as Roosevelt's. The jungle is a unique and delicate world. Plants fought one another for sunlight, while insects battled to protect their small niche, and the animals struggled to find the food they needed to survive. Candace Millard, in her book, The River of Doubt, had this to say about the world that these men had ventured into. Quote, From its outward appearance, the rainforest was not a garden of easy abundance, but precisely the opposite. Its quiet, shaded halls of leafy opulence were not a sanctuary, but rather the greatest natural battlefield anywhere on the planet, hosting an unremitting and remorseless fight for survival that occupied every single one of its occupants every minute of the day. In the end, this meant that the expedition was not going to find this world teeming with game to hunt and fruit to pick. In fact, it was quite the opposite. And so, for the men of the River of Doubt expedition, the river and the jungle was a dangerous mystery. The insects, like mosquitoes, brought yellow fever and malaria. In the water, there were the legendary bloodthirsty piranhas, whose bite could take off a man's toe, as well as the caiman, a cousin to the crocodile. There were frogs so poisonous, just touching them could kill a man, and snakes whose bite were as deadly as any in the world. And then there were, probably, people. No one really knew. The Nambiquara Indians had said there were natives along the river, but they did not know them. And so the expedition moved slowly down the river. Rain was a constant companion. The Amazon basin generally gets about 100 inches of rain a year, or 2,500 millimeters, with March and April being the wettest months. The rains would soak the men's clothing to the point where they were never fully dry. On March 1st, the lead canoe would round a bend and be startled to see before them a village. The appearance took the men off guard, as they had seen no sign of human activity along the river to this point. The village, which consisted of several huts, was found to be long abandoned. There were also remnants of a bridge that had been built over the river. The village was eerily quiet, and it put the men on edge, 
but it was clear no one had been there in ages, so the expedition moved on. Now, on the same day, the expedition would have two encounters of note. First, one of the men shot a woolly monkey, the first fresh game they had taken since starting their journey. These could be as big as 20 pounds, or 9 kilograms, giving the team some welcome fresh meat. The second encounter was almost a disaster. While setting up camp for the night, one of the camaradas would startle a deadly coral snake. The man swung his axe at the snake, knocking it directly towards Teddy Roosevelt. Roosevelt reacted by stomping on the snake, but only hitting its body. The snake lashed out and sunk its fangs into Roosevelt's heavy boots. The boots saved Roosevelt's life as the fangs didn't penetrate the leather. If the snake had gotten Roosevelt's flesh, he would have died. The venom of the coral snake attacks the nervous system, causing irreversible and painful paralysis. A person's respiratory system eventually collapses and they suffocate to death within hours of being bitten. There was no antidote. It was a very lucky moment for Roosevelt, and it was a blunt reminder of the dangers that confronted the expedition. On March 2nd, the speed of the river would quicken, a sign of rapids ahead. A reminder, all the tributaries of the Amazon start at higher altitudes. In the west, they start in the Andes Mountains. In the north, they start in the Guiana Highlands. In the south, they start in the Brazilian Highlands. They all steadily lose elevation and reach the Amazon Basin. So that there were rapids ahead was not a surprise. The only question was just how wild these rapids would be. At 3.30 that afternoon, the answer would be revealed. At first, there was a roar in the distance, and then the canoes came to the rapids. But they were mild, and they were easily managed. But after the first set of rapids, the water picked up again, and white water was spotted ahead. These were world-class rapids, potentially dangerous. The canoes were ordered to the shore. Next, a group of men would cut a path along the shore of the river and scout ahead. They would return with some bad news. The rapids went for about a mile and included a pair of waterfalls six feet, or two meters, high. And even more disconcerting was that the river, which had, not long before, been as wide as 300 feet, or 90 meters, was funneled into a gorge only six feet, or two meters, wide. It created a water chute of immense velocity. The contraction of the river stunned Roosevelt, who wrote, quote, It seems extraordinary, almost impossible, that so broad a river could in so short a space of time contract its dimension to the width of the strangled channel through which it now poured its entire volume, end quote. A photo was taken of George Cherry kneeling by the channel, touching the other side of the gorge with his rifle. There was no way the canoes would survive that, and so Rondone ordered a portage of the canoes and supplies to be conducted. It would not be the last time. The portage would take two and a half days. Everyone worked, except a comrade named Franca, who was the cook, plus another paddler who was suffering from malaria. The canoes were unloaded and the gear carried past the rapids. The canoes were then hauled out of the water using block and tackle. Remember, some of them weighed more than a ton, so this was not simple. To get the canoes past the rapids, the men cut down dozens of trees and created hundreds of thick, six-foot-long poles. These poles were placed on the ground every six feet, and the canoes pushed along them, like on rollers. It was slow and awkward and exhausting, and I would be remiss if I didn't say that the team would have done well to have brought along Anthony Fiala's canoes, which weighed only 160 pounds, or 73 kilograms. The portaging of the canoes and supplies presented two major issues. First, it was hard, really hard, and this strained the strength and stamina of the men, which could be dangerous. The second, and more important issue, was food. This forced the men to use up their important rations. And so the expedition moved on. The jungle grew denser and denser as they moved deeper and deeper into the rainforest. However, the men were happy to be past the rapids. Which means the next day they would find, you guessed it, more rapids. It was a half a mile of churning white water, including a pair of waterfalls. 
Time to portage everything, including the canoes, again. This portage would take three days. The only positive was that Kermit Roosevelt and one of the camaradas, a man named Antonio Parisi, brought back another monkey as well as a turkey-like bird called a jacku. Still, more of the expedition's precious food supply was consumed as the portage was conducted. And with this set of rapids passed, the expedition moved on and, of course, ran into more rapids. However, they weren't as dangerous looking as the previous stretches, so the decision was made to run the canoes through them. The provisions and gear were thus unloaded and portaged downriver, and some of the camaradas led the canoes through the boulder-choked waters. Things went pretty well until one of the canoes, which was not in good shape to begin with, was damaged and decided it had had enough and sank. In 12 days, the expedition had gone only 75 miles and had lost a canoe. Could things get worse? Well, of course they can. That's what happens in stories like this. The next day, the expedition would wake up to find that one of the bigger canoes, which was old and leaky, had surrendered to the inevitable and sunk. The expedition was now down to five canoes. These remaining canoes did not have the capacity to carry all the men and their provisions. Rondon and Roosevelt knew that they couldn't go back, and trying to walk held little appeal. The remaining option was to get another boat. And thus, the expedition would spend four days building a new dugout canoe. They found a suitable tree and cut it down, and under Rondon's direction, built their new dugout. The camaradas worked long and hard, even toiling in the dark using candlelight. Insects were everywhere, tormenting every one. Roosevelt and the other Americans had mosquito netting fitted over their helmets to help them, but it was difficult. As the canoe was being fashioned, Roosevelt tried to go hunting, but his glasses fogged up in the humidity, making it nearly impossible. By the way, Roosevelt had terrible eyesight. His glasses were so important to him, he brought ten pairs of them with him whenever he traveled. And while Theodore Roosevelt did not have any success hunting, his son and some of the other men did, bagging a large water snake and some game birds. The new canoe would be completed on March 14th. It was 26 feet long, or 8 meters. Roosevelt was impressed by the work Rondon and the camaradas had done. The first day back on the river, the expedition would run six sets of rapids in just four hours. There was more than a hint of desperation, as they were taking greater risks to keep advancing. Also, due to the dwindling food supplies, Roosevelt would convince Colonel Rondon to alter the fixed station survey that was proving so time-consuming. The survey would continue, but now the sighting rod would be employed from the lead boat. This meant things were much quicker, but less accurate. It was a trade-off Roosevelt willingly accepted. So, it was on this day that the expedition would again narrowly avoid disaster. This was when Roosevelt's canoe would get caught in a whirlpool. The canoe would start to spin around in the water, and in the process get sucked downward. Roosevelt's canoe was only a couple of inches above the water line, so when this happened, the water from the river began to fill the canoe. Understanding the ramifications of the moment, George Cherry and Dr. Kajizira jumped overboard to lighten the load. This allowed Roosevelt and the camaradas to hastily paddle the canoe away from the whirlpool. Disaster thus averted. The next day, March 15th, the expedition would get an early start at 7 a.m. However, within a few miles, the signs of rapids again appeared. The current picked up and ahead white water was seen. Before the men was an island in the middle of the river. Rondon ordered everyone to the west or left shore. They would have to do another portage. It was here that Kermit Roosevelt would make a fateful decision. He eyed up the island in the middle of the river and wondered if the waters on the right side, which were obscured from their vantage point, was not so wild. If so, perhaps they could avoid portaging the canoes. Kermit would take his canoe, along with two camaradas named Joao and Simplicio, plus one of the dogs, out to the island. It was a risky move, as the waters were quite rough and a low waterfall was not far down river. Well, the men would investigate the right side of the river and find it no better than the left. 
Kermit and the men would thus head back to the team on the western shore. However, on the way, the canoe would get caught by a whirlpool and spun around and carried further downriver. Kermit knew that they didn't have a chance of reaching the shore, so he directed the canoe into the waterfall. Better to go nose first than on their side. The canoe would plunge over the falls and, miraculously, find itself upright and afloat, but swamped with water. The men furiously began to paddle toward the shore. And then, just as they neared the bank, another whirlpool would grab the canoe and spin them around and spit them back out into the middle of the river. Jual, the camarada, jumped out of the boat, grabbed a rope, and tried to pull the canoe to the shore. But the current was too strong. He would lose his grip and the boat would capsize. Kermit and Simplicio spilled into the water and grabbed onto the canoe as it rushed further downriver and toward another waterfall. Kermit Roosevelt, still clutching his favorite Winchester rifle, would be plunged over the falls and swept forward. He was lucky that the current carried him to a stretch of calm water where he climbed ashore. Simplicio was not so lucky. He was gone. The other man Jual had managed to get to shore, as had the dog. Their canoe was destroyed, shattered on the rocks below the waterfall. Colonel Rondon, who had proceeded along the riverbank to investigate the rapids, only now realized what had happened. When he saw Kermit, he was initially relieved. I mean, no one wants to lose a man. But then he was furious. Kermit had disobeyed his orders and almost died because of it. He said to Kermit, quote, Well, you have had a bath, eh? End quote. With the realization that Simplicio was missing, a search was conducted up and down the river for a mile. No luck. The man was presumed drowned. No body was ever recovered. This was a tragic moment, and an avoidable one. Kermit Roosevelt's confidence, some would say arrogance, had cost another man his life. And Kermit showed little remorse for the decision, at least in his diary. However, how he truly felt, we really don't know. The man was prone to brooding, and he may have internalized the disaster. No matter, it was a perfect example of why Teddy Roosevelt was so concerned about his son. That Kermit had survived was a minor miracle. The thought of telling Edith Roosevelt that her son was dead scared the heck out of Teddy. He warned his son to temper his actions, but not much would change. Rondon, by the way, took the death in stride. While he was not happy about Simplicio's death, he did not dwell on it. That was the way of these expeditions. Death was a part of things. The next morning, when the expedition made their camp marker, they would add these words, quote, in these rapids died Port Simplicio, end quote. As he was unmarried and had no children, Roosevelt and Rondon agreed that his wages would be sent to his mother. That day, the expedition would not take long to encounter another series of rapids. However, they did find a channel to bypass them. They would have to unload all the supplies and haul them down river for about a half mile, or one kilometer, while the boats were guided through the bypass. By the way, in case it's not clear, I want to explain that there were really two types of portages down the River of Doubt. The major ones happened when the river got so dangerous, nothing would survive the rapids and waterfalls. This meant that the supplies and the canoes had to be hauled overland to the bottom of the rapids. This was, as we have seen, something that took days. The other type of portage happened when the rapids were dangerous, but not impossible to manage. For this situation, provisions were usually unloaded and carried past the rapids. The boats were then led through the rapids, but still in the water. This might happen by having the men attach ropes to the boats and guiding them down the river from the shore keeping them away from boulders and whirlpools and so forth. Such portages might take hours instead of days. So while this portage took place, Rondon decided to go hunting with his favorite dog, Lobo. While walking through the jungle, Lobo would suddenly bolt past Rondon and into the forest. A moment later, there was a yelp. Rondon froze. Had the dog been attacked? Was it a jaguar? And it was then that he heard human voices. Rondon would describe this moment, saying, quote, These are well known to me. 
They are the short exclamations, energetic and repeated in a kind of chorus, with a certain cadence particular to the Indians who, when they are ready for the fight, commence the attack on the enemy. End quote. Lobo then reappeared, two arrows in his side. Rondon would fire his rifle in the air once, and then twice, to try and frighten away the voices. It didn't work. They only got louder, like a war whoop. He fled. When Rondon reached the camp, the voices had broken off their pursuit. The men would grab their weapons and prepare for an attack that did not come. Meanwhile, Rondon was greeted by more bad news. Another of the canoes was lost. During the portage, a rope leading it had broken, and the canoe had been shattered on some rocks. Rondon would gather several men, including Lyra and Kermit Roosevelt, and go back to where Lobo had been attacked. They would find signs of the Indians, as well as the body of the dog. Rondon would leave some gifts for the Indians, a couple of axes and some beads, in hopes that they would take the offerings as a sign of their peaceful intentions. The colonel had been lucky. The Indians had likely set up an ambush, and Lobo, sensing the presence of others, had gone ahead, as trained, and walked right into the trap. If Rondon had been alone, he likely would have been the one on the receiving end of those arrows. No matter, the ghosts of the River of Doubt were now very real, and very deadly. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles in a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED lights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Napoleon Bonaparte rose from obscurity to become the most powerful and significant figure in modern history. Over 200 years after his death, people are still debating his legacy. He was a man of contradictions, a tyrant and a reformer, a liberator and an oppressor, a revolutionary and a reactionary. His biography reads like a novel, and his influence is almost beyond measure. I'm Everett Rummage, host of the Age of Napoleon podcast, and every month I delve into the turbulent life and times of one of the greatest characters in history, and explore the world that shaped him in all its glory and tragedy. It's a story of great battles and campaigns, political intrigue, and massive social and economic change, but it's also a story about people populated with remarkable characters. I hope you'll join me as I examine this fascinating era of history. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. The shooting of Rondon's dog would cast a new light on the entire River of Doubt expedition. The men had always expected to run across some natives, but now that it had happened, it was unnerving. And upon examining the arrows that had killed Lobo, from the design, Rondon could see that this was a new tribe, one that no one knew anything about. I will get back to these mysterious natives a little later, but for now the expedition was in trouble. They were down to four canoes, not enough for 21 men, and there were no trees suitable to build a new canoe. And thus the decision was made to have part of the team walk, while the others took the canoes. After ridding themselves of unnecessary baggage, eight men would go with the canoes and 13 would set out on foot. They would have to hack their way north along the river. It was a slow, tiring, and often painful process. Roosevelt was in one of the canoes, as well as several camaradas who were suffering from various ailments and couldn't walk. 
At this point, the team had gone about 90 miles, or 145 kilometers, and eaten a third of their food. If the river was a thousand miles long, well, they were in serious trouble. Food, by the way, was cut to two meals a day. The men had not caught a single fish on the journey downriver, and the plan to do extensive hunting was a bust. The camaradas were scavenging in the forest for food. They kept out an eye for bees in hope of getting honey. But the biggest thing they found was palmito, the inner core of a small palm tree. It was bland and not very nutritious, but it filled the men's stomachs. Even the officers took to eating it. As we have seen in other episodes of this podcast, men in this situation often fantasize about food, and this expedition was no exception. The men talked about food all the time, primarily dreaming about what they would eat once they got home. Mutton chops, strawberries and cream, pancakes and maple syrup, you get the idea. However, despite the talk, a gloom had overtaken the camp. The men were beginning to wonder if they were going to survive. And then, just when needed, there would be some developments that would raise the spirits of the team. On March 16th, at the end of some rapids, they came upon a 70-foot-wide river pouring into the River of Doubt. This convinced them that the River of Doubt was not a tributary to the G. Piranha. Also, two fish, called Paku, were caught by the team. Having more food was obviously a great thing. But the camarada said that the Paku didn't travel on heavy rapids. If true, it offered the men hope that the worst of the rapids were behind them. The next day, March 17th, the expedition would take some time for an official ceremony. In the ceremony, the Rio da Duvida's name would be officially changed to the Rio Roosevelt. The ceremony seemed to lift the spirits of the men. Roosevelt had known the Brazilian government was going to change the river's name, but he had advised Rondon not to do it. He thought River of Doubt was a good name, and I have to agree. In fact, I think it's an awesome name, but they didn't ask me, so the Roosevelt River it is. Onward went the expedition, 13 men on foot, 8 on the boats. The men on the shore quickly came to realize that the trail they were on was man-made, and then, not long after that, they saw signs of the region's mysterious Indians. This included footprints in the mud, even voices. It unnerved the men. The Indians, so invisible for weeks, were now omnipresent. A short while later, the men would come upon a village along the banks, which consisted of three huts. There was no one there, but the village was obviously not abandoned. Everyone knew that they were being watched. Rondon would leave some gifts, again a way to signal his friendly intentions. Now, I want to take a moment to talk about the natives, who we call Sinta Larga, because we actually have information about their point of view regarding this story. First, the Sinta Larga had, indeed, had no contact with the outside world. The rapids of the River of Doubt had, for the most part, kept outsiders away from them. So when the expedition came floating down the river, they were stunned at what they saw. They had never seen pale men, many with big beards, something the Sintelarga could not grow. Were these monsters, animals, men? They didn't know. Even the canoes were a marvel to the Sintelarga. The Sintelarga fished and hunted with spears and arrows. They were masters at surviving in the jungle, moving silently and with ease. They wore no clothing, thus nothing hooked on vines or got tangled in vegetation. And they had an elaborate system to mark their trails and territory, one that no outsider knew existed. The Sintelarga lived in small villages, usually of no more than two or three huts, with several families in each hut. They had no overarching organization or chief. Basically, each family was their own boss. This loose, independent structure of the tribe is what likely kept the men of the Roosevelt Rondon expedition alive. And that is because as the canoes moved down the river, the Sintelarga were watching them the entire time. Many of the natives wanted to attack the strangers. And make no mistake, if it had happened, Roosevelt and his men would have been wiped out. However, such decisions were not made by a single person, but as a collective. This gave the expedition a little breathing room as they could move on before any decision could be reached. 
and thus the natives were content to leave obvious signs for the expedition, warnings to move along. And who knows, the gifts left by Rondone may have swayed some not to attack either. Now, we have this information about the Sintelarga thanks to the work done by author Candace Millard, who wrote The River of Doubt. Let me explain. To research her book, Millard actually traveled to the jungles of the Amazon and found the Sintelarga tribe in the early 2000s. There they told her stories that had been passed down from generation to generation of the first white men to come to the river. This was Roosevelt's team. Thus, she had learned how they reacted to their arrival, how some wanted to attack, others let them pass, that sort of thing. It's an admiring nod to her work that she was able to discover this point of view to our story. In the end, the Sintelarga would let the strangers pass, but it had been a close call. I find it fascinating that the natives, who loom large over things for Roosevelt and Rondone, are never actually seen by the expedition. Never. But like I said, they hover over everything. Now, I want to add that if Rondone had not been with the expedition, the chance of Roosevelt returning would have been diminished. And that's because Roosevelt would have been way more likely to use force at some point in the descent of the river. When the dog Lobo had been shot, the men could easily have responded by firing their rifles at anything that moved, or they could have burned down or ransacked the Sintelarga villages they came across. Instead, Rondone left gifts, simple offerings of friendship. It was something he had done with many other tribes in the Amazon. A man such as Roosevelt would not have been so calm or cool in his response. No matter, the Sintelarga will fade into the background of our story, goes to the end. So, moving on from the local tribes, the expedition would continue down the river, rapids and waterfalls a constant companion, not to mention a dwindling food supply. At this time, the expedition would come upon another tributary joining the River of Doubt. Rondone wanted to investigate up the river a ways, but Roosevelt insisted they keep moving. Roosevelt would win. It was yet another sign of Roosevelt overriding Rondone. However, it was here that the team would find some trees that would make good dugout canoes. Thus, they would stop and elect to build two new canoes so the entire team could return to the river. Roosevelt agreed to this plan. It was also here that the expedition would run into a new problem when 15 of the emergency food rations were found missing. The suspected thief was a camarada named Julio. While the camaradas had proven to be exceptional workers and honest men, Julio had been a disappointment. He was a big, strong man and looked the type of the hardened jungle porter, but he had disappointed everyone when things got difficult. He complained constantly and was always finding excuses not to work. Now he was suspected of theft. However, there was no proof. The team could only watch him more closely going forward. Now, the construction of the new canoes would go slow. Too slow in the eyes of Roosevelt. He would press Rondone about this, who admitted he had told his men to slow the building of the boats down so that Lieutenant Lyra could do some surveying of the nearby tributary. This infuriated Roosevelt and the rest of the Americans, and it could really have led to a break. However, Roosevelt understood that there was no good reason to argue. Instead, he would demand that Rondone abandon the fixed station survey. It was too time-consuming, he said, and too dangerous. Rondone would reluctantly agree, tersely noting in his journal, quote, The topographical survey proceeded without our being able to obtain all the benefit of the technical resources which we had at our disposal, end quote. This was hard for Rondone, who believed, above all else, his job was to complete the mission, and surveying the river had been its priority. But he was also supposed to get the Americans safely down the river, and so he acquiesced to Roosevelt's demand, albeit reluctantly. The new boats would be launched on March 22nd. However, within the day, they would come upon a narrow gorge, impossible to run the boats through. It was time for another portage. Now, in addition to the men suffering from malnutrition, illness was getting more and more prevalent. Malaria was the big issue. 
A person who gets malaria usually exhibits symptoms within a week or two. The first thing would be chills, and then a cold so brutal they would shake violently and uncontrollably. And at the same time, the body would overheat in response to the chills, body temperatures rising to as high as 106 degrees Fahrenheit or 41 degrees Celsius. Death was a possibility. The expedition's doctor gave out quinine to battle malaria, but they only had so much of it, and too much was bad for a person. Thus, malaria was always an issue. This was especially true for Kermit Roosevelt. He practically lived with the disease nonstop. In addition to illness and disease, the wet and humidity was rotting their clothing and boots. Miserable was the best word to describe everyone. On March 24th, the expedition, which only a week before had been hoping that the worst of the rapids was behind them, heard a roar like they had not heard to this point. The men knew what it was, another big string of rapids. Over the next four days, the expedition would only go four miles as they constantly had to portage the gear downriver. During the portage, one of the camaradas, a man named Paishan, a respected veteran, caught Julio stealing rations. This was a difficult moment for Rondon and Roosevelt. They could abandon the men, which would likely mean his death. No one wanted that. And let's face it, they needed strong men. Losing him would hurt the expedition. To punish him physically was foolish, as an injured man was a burden to the party. And thus, they could do no more than admonish Julio, and keep close tabs on his movements, and keep him away from the supplies. On March 27th, the expedition was undergoing yet another portage. All the gear was carried downriver, while the boats were guided through the rapids. It was here that one of the rafts, again meaning two of the canoes lashed together, got stuck on some rocks. Several of the camaradas tried to dislodge the raft, but with no luck. The fear was that it would get loose on its own and go flying uncontrollably down the river. Losing two canoes would be a disaster. Calling out for help, others would arrive, including Teddy Roosevelt. The men waded out into the river and tried to dislodge the canoes from the boulders without losing control of them. It was then that Roosevelt would slip and fall, badly slicing his right leg on a sharp rock. He would limp back to camp, blood pouring out of the wound. A note here. Back in 1902, Roosevelt had been in a trolley accident and his leg had been severely injured. The injury was so bad there was even talk of amputation. Well, the leg was fine now, except if it was injured. If it got hurt, it became easily inflamed. So while Roosevelt was looked after by the doctor, the boats were rescued and the portage continued. Then, after moving downriver a short ways, the expedition would make camp early due to torrential rains. They knew there were more rapids ahead. The next morning, March 28th, Roosevelt's leg was not looking good. An infection had already set in, and to make matters worse, malaria flared up. Within a few hours, the president was an invalid. Everyone was shocked at how rapidly Roosevelt's health declined. And if that wasn't enough, the men came back with bad news of the rapids ahead. It was a mile-long gorge, a canyon of high cliffs that funneled the raging white water down the river. There were six waterfalls within the canyon, the last 30 feet or 9 meters high. There was no way the boats could make it. They would again have to portage everything, including the canoes. That would mean days. However, when the men scouted ahead, they found the gorge was carved out of a fine-grained, slippery stone. There was no way to haul the boats over it. They appeared to be at an impassable barrier. Rondon would break the news to the men, saying, quote, We shall have to abandon our canoes and every man fight for himself through the forest. End quote. For the men, this was just shy of a death sentence. But for Teddy Roosevelt, it was worse. There was no way he could make such a journey, not in his condition. And this takes us to a belief of Theodore Roosevelt's. As we have seen, he is a relentlessly energetic and positive and brave man. He believed in action. And at the same time, he detested the idea of dragging down others. His father had ingrained such things in him, and he had ingrained those same ideas into his children. 
On this expedition, he had worked hard. No one questioned his commitment or willingness to work. He did what was necessary, such as jumping into the river to try and save the canoes that was their lifeblood. But Roosevelt also believed that it was honorable, even noble, to sacrifice for one's companions. And to unnecessarily tie up resources, slow down others, and put others in jeopardy, well, that was wrong. It was better to step aside, honorably, and give others the chance to survive. This moment was not unlike one on Robert Falcon Scott's South Pole expedition a couple of years earlier. Scott's team had reached the pole, but on the return journey, the men were wasting away. One of the men, Lawrence Oates, knowing he was going to die, simply walked out into a snowstorm and to his death so that resources wouldn't be wasted on him. Roosevelt, who no doubt knew that story, saw himself in the same situation. And I want to remind you, this is not a soft man. This is a guy who'd been shot in the chest, yet had gone on to deliver a 90-minute speech. He was a guy who never shied from a fight, and he certainly was not the kind of man to give up. President William Taft, who knew Roosevelt well, said this of the man, quote, He had the spirit of the old berserkers, end quote. And so Roosevelt laid in camp, fever raging, body aching, and saw things were not good. He was dead weight, a millstone around the neck of the expedition. It was something he would not tolerate. In case he ever got into this exact situation, Theodore Roosevelt always carried with him on these kinds of adventures a bottle of morphine, just in case. Regarding the moment, author Candace Millard would write this, quote, For him, this was not about suicide, it was about doing the right thing. End quote. That night, Roosevelt was doing badly. He would call to his bedside his son, Kermit, as well as George Cherry, who he had become close friends with on the expedition. He said to the two, quote, Boys, I realize that some of us are not going to finish the journey. Cherry, I want you and Kermit to go on. You can get out. I will stop here. End quote. Here was Teddy Roosevelt, in pain, racked with malaria, an infection setting in, and getting worse by the hour. His temperature was rising. He was unable to even stand on his own, much less walk, and it appeared that the team was going to have to proceed on foot. The president knew when the cards were bad, and at this point, he was prepared to give it up to help others survive, including, and especially, his son. Now, Teddy Roosevelt may have felt that he was the most important person in the world, and at times he very well may have been. And he thought that, as the most important person in the world, everyone would do as he requested. And that takes us to the president's son, Kermit. Kermit Roosevelt, as we discussed, was so like his father, courageous and bold and fearless and curious. Yet the two were very different in temperament. One was loud and boisterous, the other quiet and introspective. In his life, Kermit had never defied his father, who was an overwhelming personality. But sometimes, a little rebellion is good. Kermit Roosevelt, when told by his father that he would, quote, stop here, end quote, would shake his head. No such thing was going to happen, not while there was a sliver of hope. And thus, for a moment, Kermit Roosevelt took the mantle of leadership that his father wore so well and denied his father's request. President Theodore Roosevelt was thus faced with a dilemma. He knew that if he died, it would only make it more difficult for Kermit to survive. And that's because his son would never abandon him. Never. Not in life or in death. He would later write, quote, I knew he would not abandon me, but he would insist on bringing my body out. That, of course, would be impossible. I knew his determination, so there was only one thing left for me to do, and that was to come out myself. End quote. It is a powerful moment, all of Roosevelt's bluster and belief in being tough and rugged and so forth, rejected by a son who simply refused to give up on his father. Anyhow, I will leave things here for today. The expedition appeared stuck, unable to go forward in their canoes, and Theodore Roosevelt was on the brink of death, but determined to live. 
Please join us next time for part four in our series on Teddy Roosevelt and the River of Doubt. I want to wrap up by saying that the Explorers podcast is part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Go to airwavemedia.com to check out other independent podcasts, such as the Pirate History Podcast and I Know What Scares You, and many others. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. I will see you next time. Take care. Hello, my name is Matt, host of the Pirate History Podcast. Pirates rank among the most mythologized and romanticized of all historical figures. It can become easy to forget that pirates were real people that had real-world concerns. If you like tales of high seas adventure, daring do, and also want to learn more about who Blackbeard supported to be king, you can learn more about all of that at the Pirate History Podcast.